0: Good morning, trailer church. We will be reading from the book of Romans. We're starting a Romans series this morning And so you can find that on the black Bibles around you again. That is Romans 1 Verses 1 through 7 Romans chapter 1 verses 1 through 7 Paul a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Hey, good morning, guys. My name is Steve. I need to introduce myself. Some of you may not have met me. Um, I, I am the lead pastor. I've been out of the pulpit for the last uh, five weeks, which is um, has become part of my summer rhythm, getting a break. It, uh, it's good for my soul. It is good for my emotional health. Um... And uh, and honestly, it helps me recharge uh, for the fall. And and I'm super excited to be kicking off our study in the book of Romans this morning. Um, I feel a little bit like Gimli this morning. I don't know if you know who Gimli is. Any any Lord of the Rings fans out there? J. R. R. Tolkien? Yes, yes. Um, Gimli is uh, the stud of uh, the 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 crew carrying the ring. Um, so J.R.R. Tolkien wrote an incredible classic work, uh, Lord of the Rings, um, it's phenomenal, and, and, and in this mythology of Middle-earth, um, one of the characters, a dwarf named Gimli, loves to sing the praise of living rock. Uh, dwarves live underground, and um, they love to, to mine, they spend most of their time in these caverns, and... Um, and over the course of this journey, he develops one of the most unlikely friendships in all of literature. He becomes best friends with Legolas, who is an elf. Elves live in the woods, and they love rivers and sprites and sunlight, and can't imagine ever going underneath the earth. And, and Gimli, who, who lives in these caverns, is terrified of, of the woods. And, and um, one of the cool things that happens in the book, it, it doesn't come out in the movies, but but Gimli and Legolas make an agreement over the course of their journey where, where Gimli promises he will go visit the forests of Lothlorien with, with, um, uh, with Legolas, even though he's terrified. And Legolas agrees to go to the caverns behind Helm's Deep uh, with Gimli. And, and the reason that grabbed my, my attention is this. In part of the story, they go through the mines of Moria, which used to be mines of living rock, and they've become dead. They've been, they've been gutted by greed, and they are left cold and dark, and, and even Gimli can't wait to get out of there. He describes the, the, the caverns behind Helm's Deep as, as caverns of living rock, where there is, is, is light and treasure full of color and life. Um, I had never thought about caves like that before, and I wanted to go with Gimli, um, I was like, man, I want to, I want to, I want to see what he sees. Well, here's the thing: this morning I feel a little bit like Gimli as we start the Book of Romans. I've been wandering the caverns of the Book of Romans for the last 33 years. I absolutely love this book, and I'm really excited that I get to be your tour guide uh, in a sense as we go through it. But here's the thing: I, I don't want you to be a tourist. Uh, tourists go through and find interesting things take selfies and move on and never look back at the pictures Um, your your camera by the way is full of those photos you know it Um, I, I want you to come to love the book like I love it I want you to come to love this message like I love it it has shaped me it has changed me it has challenged me it has encouraged me it has in my in my darker moments given me life and I can't wait to see you dig in and uh and share in some of this treasure um there are few books as full of treasure as the book of romans the whole bible is full of treasure the whole bible is full of life but in the book of romans man the gems are on the surface and the more you dig the more treasure there is to be found there are few places in scripture as rich as the book of romans martin luther um the, uh, the famous reformer said this about Romans. He said, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is worth, well worth a Christian's while, not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as if it were his daily bread for the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it takes. John Calvin said, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage opened to him to understanding the whole of Scripture. This book is the key to understanding um, the rest of the Bible. John Piper said very simply, it's the greatest letter ever written. It is the longest of Paul's letters. It's at 16 chapters. Um, But you can sit down and read it in under an hour from cover to cover. And it is like a cavern filled with wonders. The more you explore, the more you will find. And the cool thing about the treasure in this book is that it doesn't just enrich your mind. There are those impoverished students of the Bible who come to a book like this and just study it to know more. They get interested in the intellectual challenges, in in the systematic structures of the entire scripture. They get fascinated by theology and they miss the life in the message. We're not here to gain just information. We're not here to find it just interesting. We are spending time here because I believe it'll change your life. These words carry power. When you discover things in this book, you don't just gain more knowledge, you experience more life. So I'm going to encourage you, grab a study book. Okay, don't, don't engage this passively. The more you engage, the more you will gain. The more you dig in for yourself, the more benefit you will find. Um, We have an incredible team that put these books together, uh, specifically to go along with our sermon series, and and I would encourage you to grab them and to study them um, each week before the sermon. Right? to actually study the text before you come to the sermon. That's an intentional structure. We want you in the word before you hear the sermon because we think you're going to get more out of the sermon in that way. And, and then there's, there are questions to help you process what you've learned after the sermon and, and push you into community, into conversation and community groups to help you continue to grow in, in, in your knowledge and your experience of grace. Okay? If anyone didn't grab a, uh, uh, a Roman study book, we would love to get one into your hands right now. If you would just raise your hand, um, we, will, we will put one in it, <laughs> okay, um, because we would love to have you have it. Here's the thing. These books, uh, we would encourage you to carry it with you. Um, the, the Bible text is printed in the front, um, so you can take notes without having to actually write in your Bibles. Some of you really love your Bibles so much you don't even write in them. I love them enough to actually write in them. Um, but, uh, but you can do that in here and you can take your notes and you can keep record of what God is showing you as we go through. Um, the book of Romans is going to be a long study. It, it is going to take us a lot of time. Uh, one of my, one of my leaders sat down with me this week and was like, Steve, I heard a rumor that we're going to spend like a couple years in the book of Romans. Is that true? I was like, yeah. Um, now here's the thing. We're going to break it up into chunks. I, I don't want to exhaust people. Um, the first study book is Romans 1 through 320. That's the first chunk. That part of the letter focuses on our need for good news, okay? And, and so this book focuses on that, and, the, and then in the later in the fall, we're going to be looking at generosity. We're going to be going through an Advent series. We're going to um, look at our core values, and then, and then in February, we're going to jump back in with, with 321 through, the, through 5. Um, so we're, we're going to kind of chunk it and deal with it over over time okay and so it's going to be important this study book will help you keep continuity through the study each chunk will have its own study book okay and so by the time we finish this study you will have your own record of your own personal discoveries on this journey so I encourage you to grab it this morning we're looking at verses one through seven verses one through seven are the greeting of the letter right when you write a letter uh if you've ever actually written a letter if you write an email uh you typically open it up with something like hey guys or or if you're more formal dear bob right these first seven verses are the dear bob okay these first seven verses are the the greeting of the letter and and we're going to get a foretaste or our taste here of paul's one of paul's techniques throughout this letter and, and that's the technique of foreshadowing. Foreshadowing is Paul's way of introducing an idea, touching it, and then moving on so that when it comes back to it later and goes in depth to it, it's already been mentioned. It's already been in your your mind. These foreshadowings are hints at big things. Think about it like this. this. This introduction is like Paul skipping a rock across a still lake to his recipients on the other side. And every time that rock touches the surface of the lake, it indicates there is something of great depth and value underneath. But right now, we're just skipping across the surface. Right now, we're just, we're just touching it and moving on. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and so this sermon this morning is, is going to be a series of touches across the surface um as we as we look at this introduction um this introduction what you're going to find is that paul is going to focus on one critical idea um the gospel in fact the entire letter all 16 chapters are an exploration of the gospel if you're not familiar with that it's a very churchy word the gospel um the the word the gospel or gospel comes from the greek word elangelion which means good news okay which is why Sometimes you'll hear people talking about, um, you know, even see translations, the good news translation of the Bible. It is good news. Gospel means good news. It's a technical word that was used uh, for a specific kind of good news. When, when um, an area was going to be attacked and, and all the men of the, of the community went out to war, uh, two or three valleys over from the town, of course, they didn't have cell phones. They couldn't just check in and say, hey, how's the battle going, honey, right? Um, they, they knew there was a war going on over there. They knew it was really, really important to them, but, but they didn't know. And what they would do is, is when the victory was won, They would grab one of the young men and say, sprint, get back to town with the Gellion, with the good news of victory. This is the book of the good news of victory. This is the book of the proclamation that there was a battle and a a victory. And we are the recipients of that benefit. Paul's been preaching, when he writes the book of Romans, he has been preaching the gospel for, for around 20 years and over the course of those 20 years, he has not lost his wonder at this message. Nor has he lost its, his joy in its power. He is still overwhelmed, and it just, it just drips from the pages of this letter. He, he has experienced something that he wants us to share in. He has tasted something he wants us to taste. He is experiencing a freedom and a transformation that is free to us because a victory has been won. Now, these first seven verses follow uh, the typical introduction of an ancient Near Eastern letter. So an ancient Near Eastern letter would have, would have opened with the author, the audience, and a greeting. So it would have been something like, Steve uh, to the church in Edwardsville, greetings. Right? Steve to Lauren, hey. Right? That was, that was the typical Near Eastern letter opening and and believe it or not we actually see that structure even though when you read through the first seven verses it kind of gets lost in all of the details but but in verse one it opens with paul right and then down in verse seven it says to uh the churches or or to um those gathered in in rome right now what paul does is he adds a bunch of descriptors Okay, so I just want to hit those very quickly. In verse 1, He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Those three descriptors um, define him and the purpose for which he's writing, right? The first one, a a servant of of Christ Jesus. Um, The word servant, uh, or uh, uh, servant, uh, is the Greek word doulos, which can also be translated slave. Um, In the Greek, there was only one word for slave or servant, and and how you determined it was dependent on the context. And why this is important is that in the Old Testament, often Old Testament prophets were called slaves of Yahweh. It was a title of honor, right? It's a title of honor because you got your honor from the household in which you served, and there's no greater honor than serving in the household of Yahweh, the living God. Now, what's changed here is that he's shifted from a slave of Yahweh to a slave of, of Christ Jesus. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time with this, but I'm going to encourage you in your studies to notice the way Paul talks about Jesus, because each time he does it, it's a different nuance, right? Instead of saying Jesus Christ, which is what we're used to seeing, he says Christ Jesus. Christ isn't his last name, it's his title. Christ is a, a, a word that means the anointed one or the Messiah. And here when he's talking about as a servant of Christ Jesus, he is using it as, a, as an honorific title, right? He is, he, Jesus is, a, is, is one of great honor, and he has a great honor in being a servant in his household. So that's his identity. He is a slave of Christ Jesus. He is called to be an apostle. That's his vocation. Right? He's, a, he's referring here to the time when, when, when uh, in, in the book of Acts, we read of, of him being confronted by the resurrected Christ. He was persecuting the early church. He was an adamant uh, enemy of the gospel and of the message of the way. He was fighting against Christians and Christ, and Jesus showed up in his resurrection form, uh, surprised him so much that it knocked him off his donkey and knocked him off his pride, and uh, blinded him and humbled him. He was called. It was a dramatic moment in which the Lord showed up and said, you are going to be a vessel for my honor. All that energy you're expending fighting against me, I'm going to show you what it's like to use it to fight with me and to fight for me. I, I am giving you a vocation. You will be an apostle. Uh, an apostle is a sent one, an official emissary, right? He, he, he was um, appointed uh, to represent Christ specifically with the gospel, right? That's the third phrase, set apart for the gospel of God. That's his purpose. Why was he appointed as an apostle? For the purpose of being set apart for the gospel of God. Now, that's not just his job, that's his life. Everything Paul does, everything Paul thinks, everywhere Paul goes, he knows that's his primary purpose. I have been set apart for this victorious message, to share it with others, that others might... Taste this victory that others might taste some of this freedom that others might taste some of this joy so we see his identity we see his vocation we see his his purpose and it's this purpose that drives the whole letter of romans <clears throat> the word that is used for gospel evangelion is used about a dozen times in this letter it is the central theme right this entire letter is paul unpacking um in 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 detail. Uh, which I'm sure for him felt in in summary, (laughs) um, what he had learned, what, what he was passionate about, what he had seen about this incredibly good news. And he's writing this letter to those that are in Rome. And he uses two descriptors for them. He says, you are those who are loved by God, that's their identity, and those who are called to be saints, that's your purpose. We'll come back to that. He says, grace and peace to you from our Lord, from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ fairly typical greeting it is interesting that in the new testament you always see this combination of grace and peace grace karate was the greek way of greeting someone or It was kind of like hey hey how you doing right karate it was grace to you Uh, shalom was the jewish way of greeting others you'd walk up shalom peace to you Um, and at the opening of almost all of his letters paul combines these two because it represents the fact that God has done this incredibly unique thing where he has taken all of the diversity of the world and unified it into a single body that receives the good news. Grace and peace. Kairate and shalom to you. Alright, so that's verses 1 and 7. That's your greeting. What about the other five verses? What's all that stuff in between, right? What's, what's going on there? <laughs> well, After he says that he has been set apart for the gospel of God in verse 1, he goes off on the gospel. Those five verses are all about the gospel, pointing us to the heart of the gospel. And each one of these sentences, and in fact, each one of these words, is loaded with meaning, like a rock skipping over the surface of the water. Each one touches a very deep and complex theological truth. All I want to do this morning is, is kind of follow the skipping rock. So we can see a little bit of of what's coming, okay? So take a look at verse 2. He says, I'm set apart for the gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God promised the gospel beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What's that about? He's basically telling us that the gospel isn't something isolated and new in God's plan. The gospel isn't plan B. The gospel wasn't like, one day God had this, I I got a new idea, I'll do this thing. It is tied in to the grand story that God has been telling throughout history. The gospel is, in fact, the climax of the great story, not only of human history, but more importantly, God's determination to redeem and restore humanity. It is his plan. Scholars debate uh, exactly how many Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled uh, by Jesus in the Gospels. It's somewhere between two and four hundred Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled by Jesus, and some of these are pretty obscure, right? Some of these are kind of debated. It's like, is that really a prophecy? Is that and that's why you have such a broad range from two to four hundred. But some of these are, are far from obscure. Right, The Old Testament prophesied uh, where he would born, where he'd be born, that his mother would be a virgin, um, what human lineage he would have. It prophesied the kind of death that he would have, that he would be pierced, that he would be stripped, that he would be whipped and spit upon. It prophesied that he would be rejected. It, reje- it prophesied, in fact, that his clothing would have uh, people cast lots for it the clothing he was wearing was worth so much money they decided not to tear it or destroy it. They actually stripped him of it and then gambled for it. In fact, I would encourage you, um, if you're not familiar with this idea of Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled in Jesus, it is striking and it is remarkable. I would encourage you simply to go read Isaiah 53. Isaiah was written around 700 years B.C., and yet, when you read Isaiah 53, it is, a, it is a, an intricately detailed description of of Jesus. I had a, a teacher who, who lived back in the day when they used to have daily Bible readings in public school, and, um, and he would be the one getting on the loudspeaker to read it, and they lived in a community that had a high po- a Jewish population, and, and some of the, the um, Jewish students and their families were raising an objection that every week they were reading about Jesus, and they didn't believe in Jesus, and And so they, as a school, decided to simply read from portions of the scripture on which um, Christians and Jews could all agree. And so um, my teacher read Isaiah 53, uh, to which there was an adamant uproar. The, the, The administrator was contacted, I thought we all agreed that we were not going to be reading scripture about Jesus anymore. And they're like, this is Isaiah 53, this is part of the Jewish Old Testament. I'm seriously, go read it. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Go read it. Um, it was written around 700 BC, okay? Uh, but here's the thing. Paul's point isn't just that the Old Testament scriptures validate um, Jesus, that prove that Jesus was the Messiah and that it was actually part of God's plan. Um, he's, he's making a deeper point, And it's this, that that God had given a series of promises through the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus in a profound way, going all the way back to Genesis chapter three, right? In Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve rebel against God, and in the midst, while while the the dust hasn't even settled from their rebellion, and God is explaining the consequences of of their rebellion, he looks at Eve, and he says to her, I will send you a son. There will come a seed of the woman. There will come a son of the woman. And he will be the hero that undoes what you've just done. Even though his heel will be bruised, he will crush the head of your enemy. And then throughout scripture, God continued to reiterate the promise, I will send a hero. I will send a victor. I will send one who will enter in to the greatest crisis you've ever created. He will absorb that crisis. He will pay the price of your rebellion. He will win your victory. He will be bruised, but he will crush the head of your enemy. There will be a hero. There will be a victory. Through a series of Old Testament covenants, the biggest of which were with Abraham and David, Abraham's not mentioned, uh, David will be momentarily, but the two biggest promises are what we call the Old Testament covenants would have been the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant where God promised very specific things that were tied to the coming of Jesus. The gospel is shown to be part of God's grand story. Jesus coming, dying, and rising again was not plan B. It was God's plan A from the very beginning. He had committed himself to earning for us what we had lost at great price to himself verse three this gospel which Je- which paul was set apart from uh, apart part four verse two which he promised beforehand through the prophets for the holy scriptures verse three concerning his son pause <laughs> concerning his son um the gospel promises are fulfilled in jesus the son of god jesus is the heart of the gospel Right, that we're going to see that throughout this text. The gospel of God, the good news of victory, not only points us to Jesus, it is Jesus. He is the embodiment of the good news. Right? Good news is not good advice. We're not studying the book of Romans to figure out how to manage our checkbooks better or how to solve conflicts. Now, will Romans help you figure out how to do some of that? Absolutely. But we're studying the book of Romans, not to get good advice for life, but to hear good news that will change our life. And the heart of that good news is the fact that it is embodied in a living Savior, the Son of God. The good news isn't an event in history, it's it's not good advice about how to get more out of life, it is a person, a living, breathing, resurrected person, and no ordinary person tells us that he was the Son of God. Now, he just drops this here, right? The rock just skips across the surface. (laughs) But he is asserting that Jesus was God. Right? The Son of God doesn't mean that he was somehow generated in a temporal form from God's activity. What it means is that he shared the very essence of God. He was God of God. That's how theologians would would say it. He was God of God. God. He was the Son of God. Not in a biological sense, but in the essence of actually carrying the very nature of God. This hints at at the deeper truth of the Trinity. This idea that there is one God manifest in three persons. One what manifest in three who's, right? A Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God with three personalities. That's that's all I'm going. right, that's it. The rock skips and keeps going. Um, He all right the gospel is jesus the son of god And then he goes on okay in verse three concerning his son who was descended from david according to the flesh so not only was the son of god when he was incarnate when he became human he became human in the family line of david king david why mention this of all the things that paul could mention at this point why focus on, on David. Why, why is it important that Jesus, the Son of God, when he became man, was born as a descendant of David? Well, he's hinting at something here. The rock's just skipping, but he's hinting at something here. He says there is something really, really good about this. It's tying us, it's reminding us of the Davidic covenant. David was promised that he would have a son who would reign on the throne of Israel forever. Jesus was born in the Davidic line and was the fulfillment of that promise. He was the son of David and he ruled not only on the throne of Israel, but the throne of Israel itself was simply a foreshadowing of the greater throne of all creation. Jesus was born to be the true king, the one crowned with power and honor and authority. All right, so... This summer I was studying the book of Romans to get ready for this series. And like I said, I've, I've been studying this book for 33 years. It's the first book after I became a believer that I seriously dug into and studied. Um, and and, and it, it has blown my brain ever since. And, and so I was studying it again this summer. And here's the thing. Sometimes you get used to seeing stuff. You know what I'm saying? And when you get used to seeing stuff, you stop seeing stuff. Does that make sense? Right? You look at the same thing over and over and over again, and and you get used to seeing it, so you stop seeing it. Well, something happened this summer as I was studying. Um, I saw something I've never seen. It's connected to this idea of image, being in the image of God, the word glory, which runs throughout the book of Romans, and specifically the Davidic covenant. So it wasn't just an interesting intellectual fact. It wasn't like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, there's an interesting idea I haven't thought before. Like it legitimately had an impact. I, I was in a pretty dark place coming out of the fall or the spring. Um, I'm, I am at times prone to, to seasonal depression and I know that at certain points in the winter it's normal for me to dip and, and, and I have self-care things that I do and, and I learn how to manage that. And, and this last year, man, it just dipped and it didn't come back. It was a pretty rough, pretty rough spring coming into summer. And you, some of you know what that's like. Um, you have a hard time even putting your feet on the floor in the morning. Um, and, um, and this summer there were a number of things that came together to help encourage my heart. One of the critical things that happened, and this, uh, this is the reason I'm sharing this, I saw something in the Book of Romans I'd never seen before, and it didn't just tickle my imagination. It didn't just fascinate my intellect. It fed my heart it renewed my hope. I saw something here that amazed me. And I don't get to tell you what it is. Because we're just skipping. We're just skipping. But I'm telling you, it's, I can't wait to tell you. Um, It's connected to this, I will tell you this. Jesus reclaimed what Adam lost. Adam was created in the image of God to be the steward of all creation, to be the vice-regent of God, to reign with honor, power, and dignity over all of creation. Psalm 8 promises that mankind would be restored to ruling, not only over all creation, but even the angels of heaven. Christ reclaimed a throne that had been lost, and we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. There's so much more. Um, what I will tell you this is there's a thread of gold running through this entire letter that sparkles when you see it, and it will give you hope because it's not just about the future, it's about now. It's not just about what we will do, it's about what we're called to do as we live out the reality of our identity as believers in Christ today. It undid me this summer, and I hope it'll undo you when we get there. All right, moving on. Um, verse 4. All right, verse 4 is... is of the whirlpool at the right the the rock skipped here and it man it left a it left a hole in the water um and 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 was declared jesus was declared to be the son of god in power uh according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead jesus christ our lord all right that's pretty complex um verse four he was declared to be the son of god by the spirit of holiness with power by the resurrection from Jesus preexisted as the Son of God. He was incarnate. He became human as a son of David. Also a son of Abraham and a son of Noah, and a son of Eve, but a son of David. That's specifically what we're focused on. And now, after his death and resurrection, Paul tells us he has been declared. I think the better translation is appointed. He has been appointed the son of God by the resurrection. So he was the Son of God, he became the Son of David, he died and rose again, and he was appointed the Son of God. What do we do with that, right? I mean, how can Jesus, who was the Son of God by nature, be appointed the Son of God by the resurrection? Did he become something he already wasn't? In a sense, yes. Now Paul's going to get into this in Romans chapter 4, we're going to dig into this a lot more. But theologians have a saying about the nature of Christ, remaining what He was, He became what He was not. Think about that. Remaining what He was, He became what He was not. He was God and He remained God. He didn't lose any of the attributes of God, any of the power of God. He hid the glory of God but He remained God. Remaining what He was, He became what He was not. He became human. He wasn't by nature human. He wasn't by nature part of His creation. The Creator became part of His creation. Remaining what He was, He became what He was not. But I'm going to take it a step further so that He could do what He couldn't do. There was something he couldn't do as God that he had to become human to do. Now, what in the world could Jesus not do as God until he became human in order to do it? Well, very simply, he couldn't forgive sin. God as the just judge was required by his very nature to judge unrighteousness. By his very nature, the holiness of God had to consume anything that was unholy. By his very nature, he could not reappoint a degraded humanity to the stewardship of creation and have it rule in glory. Until he had dealt with the sin of his creatures, he couldn't establish them and restore them to the glory to which they were created to to have. The Son of God became the Son of David. That he might die and rise again so that he might be appointed the son of God. That he might not change in nature. But to change in, in, in position. To take the position not only as the son of God, but now as a human. The son of David. The ruler and reign of, 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 of all creation as man. By dying and rising again, he gained the power of forgiving sin because he had, in his own substitutionary death and resurrection, paid the price of our sin. So he could, in justice, offer forgiveness because in justice, our sin had been atoned. He could restore honor, not simply by, by stating something but by actually removing the sin and the stain guilt and the shame and restoring us through his loving work to what we were created to be. Jesus was born on mission and the resurrection was his coronation. When he rose from the dead, he was crowned. Not with the crown of the Son of God, but the crown of the Son of God who is the Son of David true human that can now reign over all of humanity there's a new king on the throne and when he was raised from the dead it was the birth of new humanity of which we get to be a part that's all i can say all right uh verses five and six through whom that is jesus christ our lord again notice the difference in in title Again, nuance, it's not a meaning difference, it's a nuance difference. Now it's not Christ Jesus, it's Jesus Christ our Lord, which is a regal title, a title of power, appropriate to the Son of God who's been raised from the dead and has now been crone, uh, crowned with the, the throne, uh, with the authority of the, of the throne of David. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The gospel commissioned Paul To preach and calls us to obedient faith. Now, there's a nod here as well to the fact that he is an apostle to the Gentiles or to the nations. Um, We'll get into that. What I want to touch is this Paul was set apart so that he could call us to the obedience of faith. That's a strange phrase, the obedience of faith. Um, It's loaded with meaning. There's a dance going on in this phrase between obedience and faith. Faith is a response. Obedience is an initiation. Those are two different things. Faith is a response. God initiates toward us by revealing truth in love. Faith is our response that says, I love you in response to your love, and I trust you because of the truth. So faith is a response to God revealing himself to us in in love, revealing a truth to us in love that causes us to respond in love and trust obedience is an initiation we take to bring our life in line with what he's revealed and and of course faith leads to obedience because if we really trust him we're going to follow him if we really trust that what he says is true we're going to want to align ourselves with that truth because we believe he's the god who will lead us into greater blessing so we align ourselves with what he says in order to experience that blessing right faith leads to obedience but here he talks about the obedience of faith and part of that is because faith itself is an act of obedience the king calls each and every one of us to believe. He calls us from his position of authority. Believe the gospel. Believe the good news. The message of victory has come. Believe the truth. So in that sense, faith is an act of obedience which gives birth to all the other obedience that leads us into the fullness of life. We'll talk about more more about this because he gets into this tension in six through eight, and then and then twelve through sixteen. Here's what I want you to catch from this: Paul's not looking for converts. He's looking for disciples. Paul dedicated his life not simply to get people to convert, to change the name, right now I'm a Christian. He wanted disciples. He wanted people that were actually walking by faith, growing in faith, learning what it means to align ourselves by obedience with the will of the God who created us that we might enter into the fullness of life that God created for us. There's your greeting. There's your greeting. In closing, I want to draw your attention back to how Paul described the Romans because this is is what I want us to sit on. The rock has skipped uh, across the surface of great depth this morning. Every single time that rock touched down, I'm telling you, there was a a world of theological complexity underneath the surface. But in all that complexity, I don't want you to miss the simplicity of this message. He says, I'm writing to those who are in Rome. Verse 7. Who are loved by God and called to be saints. He is writing to those who are gathered in Edwardsville who are loved by God and called to be saints. He is writing to you. He's writing to Steve who is loved by God There is no more glorious or astounding message in all the universe than that God loves me. If you were to ask me what is the most beautiful and complex piece of theology you have studied over the years, I'm going to tell you it's Jesus loves me. God, the sovereign God universe, the God of all holiness and moral perfection, the God of absolute justice, the God who is the embodiment of self-giving love. There is not a self-serving or self-focused shade in his entire nature. This God looks at me in all of my selfishness and my self-will and my self-protection and my self-glory in all of my foolishness and my pride. He looks at me And he says, I will harness everything in my being, my power, my glory, my love, my justice, and I will bring it all to bear to bless you. Because I love you. You are loved by God. That is the first and most profound fruit of the gospel. This victory was won, not simply because God wanted to redeem and restore his creation. That is part of it, and that is part of the glorious message of the gospel, but he did it because he loves you, and he will redeem all of creation by redeeming and restoring individuals within it, each and every one of them known by me. He hasn't called you to be a dead person in a stained glass window. Which is often how we think about saints. They're, they're, they're these people of somehow greater moral fiber than I'll ever have, and they're up there cold and dead, but they look pretty from a distance. The word saint mean one, means one who is set apart for the full presence of God. He has called you to the fullness the life He created you to experience. He has called you and set you apart and put you on a path. You will experience the fullness of His blessing because it is His decree. He has called you to be a saint. He is not hoping you will be a saint. He loves you exactly as you are and He loves you too much to leave you. you so much he sent his son to die for you and rise again that you might be forgiven and made new and not just be forgiven and made new but completely set apart that you might experience the fullness of his blessing in the kingdom of his son. That's the simplicity of this message. Undergirded by all the theological sophistication and complexity of the word. And it is complex and it will challenge us. Yesterday I heard somebody say something that was really interesting. He said, uh, in the word of God, he was quoting somebody, I think it might have been John Calvin, in the word of God, God lisps. In other words, this is baby talk. This is God speaking to us in ways we can understand about things that are so complex we could never understand. And so for all the complexity we're digging into, We must never lose sight of the simplicity of the blessing of this message and the thrust. This is God's love letter to you. That you might know how profoundly and deeply you are in love, that you might be set free in that love, that you might be transformed and set free from the smallness of your little dark kingdom into the glorious freedom. I'm going to close this word of prayer, and uh, we're going to worship some more and share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us, Father God. I thank you for, um, man, the gift of your word. You, you, this profound thing where you, you revealed yourself through prophets. that they might write down things that they could never imagine that we might receive a gift that's better than we could ever hope for Father we pray that that, that you would awaken within us as we begin this study a desire to truly dig in to study um, uh, this letter with humility and with the seriousness of those who have been given a gift worth the study Help us, Lord, to enter into the depths, um, and and even when we're confused, even when at times maybe we're frustrated that we can't figure out what it means, or maybe we're frustrated because we do understand what it means, but we don't like what it says. Spirit, would you give us a humility that allows us to sit in that discomfort that we might grow in our awareness of your love and our experience of that love? Because we know at the end of the day Your goal isn't to have us think greater thoughts. Your goal is to experience more of your love. Work that into us. Spirit, awaken us to this great gift. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.